Thanks. Welcome to the uh, the Tech Journeys podcast. Thank you. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I'll just do a quick introduction. Um, so, for anyone listening who doesn't know me, I'm I'm Sean, uh, director at uh, Progress Talent. Today we're joined by Simon Thompson. Uh, Simon is the software development manager for Cambridge based UL. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how long I've, I've known you for since we first spoke, to be honest with you, Simon. How long have you been with UL? Uh, since about 2015, I think. 2015, so about five years ago we first spoke, I think. Yeah, yeah about that. Yeah, when you joined the business, right, okay. Um, so today we're going to be having a chat with Simon, just having a, a talk through his um, kind of experience, his journey through technology. Uh, and then we're going to be picking his brains a little bit on everything in relation to kind of tech interviews um, and the interview processes going into technology roles. Um, so how I usually like to start, Simon, if you don't mind, just give us a quick overview of uh, kind of yourself and, and what you do today. Yeah, so I'm going to start with day one or start with now and then go back to day one, as it that, were. That, that's it, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, so I'm obviously the, as you mentioned, sort of software development manager um, at UL um, at the moment, and that's sort of a, a culmination of a, pro, a path from being sort of a senior developer in UL, going through the sort of the, the roles that um, lead up to being a dev manager, which is again similar to what I did in my previous company, where I was there for for a long time, ended up um, obviously as a development director at that company. And prior to that, um, I'd obviously done the whole sort of growing up with computers and um, going to university and, and things like that. Um, so it's one of the things that my very first sort of computer memory is a bit of a poor one. It's pressing the break key on a BBC micro that my dad had just spent three hours in a program on um, and deleting the entire thing. So um, sort of not the greatest sort of introduction to the tech arena. Just have your dad go, what, what have you just done? Um, but um, that was sort of must have been about five or six, I think, when that happened. Um, and so from that point on, I was sort of interested in in computers. They were always around in our house. Um, oh, really? Right. So you got into it from a really early age then? Yeah. So we had BBC Micros and we had some Sinclair Spectrum kit around as well. Yeah. Um, I was a computer programmer, um, had been um, since sort of like the late 70s. What your father was, sorry. Sorry? Your dad was, did you say? Yeah, my dad was, was a right. um and my mum was a mechanical engineer but had also done technical um right, parts right, of her. Okay, yeah. So as, as a family we'd always had technology in the house. And so from sort of starts, we sort of had the BBC micros where initially that was just playing games, but it became sort of the ubiquitous computer space battles, computer battle games um, books that taught you how to write a, a game on sort of the, the BBC by type all these, these words in and press go and you'll get a game. And then there's a great big picture of, wow, that looks amazing. And then obviously when you actually run it, it's a couple of lines just appearing on a screen, simulating some ship or something, doing something, which always was a bit of a disappointment, but didn't really stop you going back and doing the next one. Um, and so for a few years, basically, yes, I messed around with sort of BBC Micros, obviously starting to get into things like um, Logo, where you took program the little bot that would then go around and draw things on the on the floor. Um, we didn't have a bot at home, but we did have one at the at the school, which was um, a good thing. So 
you could just draw pictures and things like that. Um, and after that, it was sort of like some things like Amigas um, and then early PC stuff. Um, basically, sort of <laughs> my main memory of early PCs is spending hours and hours trying to get the extended memory set on um, DOS to give you enough memory to run whatever game it was you needed. Um, modifying the sort of auto exec back and config sys to make sure you got 632k of memory and every change you made that should have given you more suddenly dropped you down to 610 and you're going this is ridiculous you'd spend two hours trying to set it up and then 30 minutes playing the game before you got called to dinner and things like that it was um the things but it was it was generally sort of the sort of first experience i had of actually trying to sort of debug issues yeah pcs just trying to get things to run um Beyond that, I started playing around with things like QBasic, which again was on the sort of early PC um, experience I got. So that came in in about sort of 91, 92. So I probably picked it up in 93-ish, so probably when I was 13 or so, and started playing with QBasic. And then after that, moved on to things like Visual Basic um, fairly soon after that and started just creating little programs. Um, I'd watch my dad do stuff who by the time was doing stuff in C and, and C++ for what he did. And um, when he, he'd sort of like do little sessions with me where he'd sort of do some sort of Easter egg inside the product that he was working on. Um, and so we'd just create sort of interesting progress bar or, or something of that just sort of to keep me interested. Yeah, yeah. Because um, at that point, C was somewhat beyond my abilities, but... I was genuinely interested in it. Um, so at, at that point, you would have been in high school at that point, wouldn't you? Yeah, so I was probably about 13, 14 stage. Uh, what, was, what was it like um, academically to kind of pursue those interests? What was it like at school with so, um, kind of courses and things like that? So at school, we had sort of the standards on maths and science stuff and business studies, but we didn't really introduce any computing um, stuff until the sort of sixth form. So when right. I was 15, 17, um, and that's when I started using things like VB6 um, uh, for, for, for the first time. Um, I'd used VB3 a little bit, but not much, but then started using VB6 there. Um, and one of the great things about that was a, the computer teacher was also a maths teacher. Yeah. And so we approached certain things from both a maths and a computing point of view. Yeah. Things like the Tower of Hanoi problem. Um, how do you approach from a maths problem? How do you work out how many turns that you actually need to do on any number of rings in the Tower of Hanoi program um, or Tower of Hanoi um, problem? And effectively, the answer comes out as two to the n minus one. And then the question from a maths point of view, prove it. Prove you can't do it in less than two to the n minus one. And so I did it from that um, angle. And then from the program angle, okay, fine. How is the most efficient way of um, doing the actual algorithm to show you what all the moves would be for doing this? And we went through various methods of that, sort of ending up with things like recursion um, and doing it very, very simply. It's basically when you get to recursion for the Tower of Hanoi problem, it's about four lines of, of code to do it. And so you can do it very, very efficiently. And so it's very interesting to see somebody present those problems from both a mathematical and a programming point of view. Um, Dr. Cowsley was his name. I never knew what his first name was, but he was, he was a good guy. He was at, um, at school for, for doing that. He was very interesting from that. 
Um, and it was around sort of that time I started doing my first bits of work for um, the company that my dad worked for at the time, which was obviously software people, but then yeah. I became an employee of. So I did little bits, um, little VB programs, sort of administrative tools, not parts of the core product, but fairly support tools for the support teams and things in that company, um, little VB programs for them. Um, so could, can I just ask there, was, you, was your dad the owner of... Um software for people or yeah he, he was the offer right, right, one of the own, one of the owners of um, yeah. so, so there were it was a bit of a um a pun playing words software for people there were four people who set it up oh, right okay hr software so it was software for people um even to this day this pains me somewhat but, <laughs> um it, it's great one a few years later, they actually went to an award ceremony and they became the communists of the software company because they were called out as software for the people. <laughs> so, uh-huh. But um, yeah, there are plenty of jokes around that, that name. But yeah, so I'm sort of slightly ashamed to say I've never had a, a newspaper round because all the jobs I've ever done really have been yeah. technical ones. Um, and so, yeah, I was only sort of like probably just 16 when I started doing the jobs for software people. Um and yeah, so we did sort of the computing stuff at school, and then I decided to do a computer science degree um, at university, which is probably one of my fairly large regrets, to be honest. Oh, really? In, um, I went into that course and came out of that course knowing pretty much what I had done when I went in from an educational point of view. Right. And really developed was off my own back. Um, it was such a, it was aimed at being a sort of a mixed ability course and it was um it brought in a lot of people who, like, who had no experience at all yeah. and was for them and therefore not really driving people who were already experienced um, in software development forward at all it also rather interestingly decided to use ada as its first introductory programming language so this was right on the crossover when um bb6 were going away and bb.net and c sharp were coming in um and yeah they chose a language which outside the military has almost no application whatsoever um still doesn't to this day although it is still used in, in a lot of military things and also actually civil aviation things like um airplane software is tends to be written in things like ada um mainly because it's a very secure language it, it stops you making mistakes although right. the, um i don't think possibly boeing are using it um, but yeah, so unfortunately, sort of way it introduced that, and then they flitted between languages. So during certain modules, I mean, we'd do Prolog, and other modules would do Lisp and Unix Batch, and then Java and VRML. And basically, as you go through the years, you just chalk up a number of languages that you've done for three months. Yeah, not really any sort of level of expert in. Um, and at this time, I was obviously learning C-sharp and doing C-sharp programs and, well, cross between C and C-sharp in my own projects. And so, therefore, I was going in a completely different direction to what they were doing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, like, your story kind of reinforces one of the age-old arguments that there is within the, like, especially within the recruitment and technology industry at the minute, which is we won't hire them if they don't have a degree. <laughs> um yeah. It, that that that's something that we kind of deal with quite a lot, and you have um, you have two sides to it. There's always companies that are adamant that they've got to have a degree, and then there are companies that mm. 
understand that, especially people who start coding at such a young age like yourself, um, is it just money down the drain sometimes and can people get themselves to that level without being in academia? Yes, I mean, just skipping ahead slightly, I pretty much remove academic requirements from any job description I get my hands on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not only is are the academic things somewhat irrelevant, but it's also a barrier to people who've done a career change. Yeah. Things like that. And from a sort of diversity and inclusion point of view, that does um, somewhat adversely impact um, women quite a lot who possibly moved to a more technical arena as a sort of career change. Um, and so therefore, it, yeah, it, it can be quite um, exclusive to start putting educational requirements on things. And, and in general, yes, it doesn't really prove very much other than that you can deliver enough work to get a degree. Yeah. My um, brother, who followed a very similar path, sort of growing up to I did, went and did a civil engineering course at university instead. He particularly he consciously avoided doing a software-related course um, and did engineering, really enjoyed it. He still ended up in a, a development job going forwards, um, but it allowed him as his first position coming out of there actually to be picked up by a company who were looking for engineers who could program rather than okay. program uh, yeah. about engineering. And so it got him a more interesting experience coming out of, of university um, than, than what I did. Um, if I had the choice again, I'd probably go back and do something like either engineering or possibly even some in the sort of law arena or something of that sort, just to get a somewhat broader um, experience of the world rather than funneling my entire life into related yeah. uh, <laughs> topics. Uh, you'll have to uh, you'll have to get a part part time job in the evenings, just doing a paper round, yeah. just to get a, get a feel of it. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because sort of at various points in my career, I have thought, is this the only thing I know how to do? Yeah. Um, and it has sort of led me to some interesting training courses for, for various things over, over the years that have absolutely no relevance to it, just to prove that to myself that I can do them. Yeah. So it, it's, it is a bit strange. Um, but yeah, while I was at university, I actually became a part-time employee of Software for People um, as a sort of an applications developer. Um, so that was in 1998. And then through university, I sort of did a year out in, in industry again for the third year, which was full-time at Software for People and back at university. And my final year project was effectively something to benefit the company. So at that time, nobody trusted sort of the Windows web servers or anything, and the company was developing its, its first web product. So my project there was to create a sort of a screen system for a custom web server to do it, which on coming out of university went straight into the next version of that, that product. So, um, so it wasn't all bad. I, I got some time to focus on some stuff that then actually benefited the company I went to work from right, okay. for the next number of years. Um, but after that, yeah, I stayed at Software for People for quite a long time. How long, how long were you with uh, Software for People? So as an employee, I was there from, 20, no, from 1998 to 2014, but I had started doing bits and pieces for them from 1995. Yeah. It was about 18 years in total. Right, okay. I was there. Um, so for the first half of that, I was just an application developer. Um, in the latter part of that, so a web developer as well. But for the early years, it was all um, sort of C-sharp, C, 
PB stuff that was legacy and still around. Um, but then, yeah, Daytona became sort of web technologies, sort of um, versions of ASP and then SPX and um, obviously all the HTML, CSS, et cetera, JavaScript. Um, and then in around, I think it was 2010, no, sorry, 20, 2006, I became the development manager, effectively when my dad retired or is partially retired. He was still the development director there, but at very, very part-time. And I, I sort of became the development manager um, of the sort of small development team that we had. Um, and then in 2010, he left altogether and I took over being the, the development director. And, um, and sort of, we, there was only three of us on the board. So you had sort of far, quite a lot of visibility of, from, what, from a business point of view of what the impl- implications of the things that you were doing in the development and technology, technology arena. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of my first experience of dealing with rather large budgets and things like that. And when you get to seven figures and, and things like that, you start saying, oh, heck, that's a lot of money. <laughs> um, so how, how, big, how big was the business at that point when you, um, when you started taking on kind of more managerial responsibility? So software people was never a particularly big business. I think at that point, it, um, sort of, it, never, it was around sort of 12 to 16 people most of the, yeah. most of the time. Um, and I, th- I can't remember what it was at its biggest now, it was, but it sort of ebbed and flowed a bit. Yeah, yeah. The market, the market changed on those sort of things. Um, development team size was sort of fairly static. Again, it wasn't particularly big, sort of four or five people type of thing. But in general, it was sort of a, um, a sort of a very small knit group. But we knew what we were doing. It was all very waterfall because it was sort of HR software and yeah. payroll delivering to certain dates. Um, and we didn't sort of, at that time it was all sort of on-prem installations, so there wasn't a sort of a, a fortnightly deployment or anything of that sort. Um, and so, it, yeah, it was all all very waterfall. And at the early point in that sort of sense, agile was a fairly dirty term as well. Sort of, it was more sort of in the in the realm of throw anything out and fix it later, yeah. rather than doing central iterative development. Um, and so, it was was somewhat late in the in the um, 20 teens that we actually started moving to, to Agile in that. So being a bit more agile in that process. How did you, um, how did you find the transition going from uh, kind of being an application developer and a web developer to taking on responsibility for other team members and kind of managing six-figure budgets? Um, what, what, was the, what was the kind of transition it, like for yourself? Difficult because a lot of it, actually um i didn't get rid of the existing responsibilities we weren't right. big enough to necessarily hire people um, yeah. to be able to um take on all of those roles so in general we i sort of had, still had to do a lot of the day-to-day development um and things like that even through sort of development director role there yeah um, so it, it was it was a good learning experience i did pretty much everything there i sort of did the development, I did the management the director, I did customer liaison for various things, um, did the technical writing for some of the stuff as well. It gave me a very good grounding for knowing just what all the roles in the development arena are. Yeah. And things like that. And so um, when it came time to, to leave that company, I sort of decided, I decided I'd achieved what I could there and it was time to do something new. Um, and I sort of said, okay, fine. I don't want to leave them in the lurch. So I sort of gave them nine months notice 
I mean, my contract was like eight weeks or something. But <laughs> I will, I will, I'll do it. I'll give you nine months notice on that. I ended up working eleven months because there was a project I wanted to finish before I, before I left because I didn't have anything else to go to at that point. I just yeah. made a decision that it was time to do something different. Um, and so when I left there, I had no intention to go straight into another development or managerial or anything technical role. And so I spent sort of the the end of sort of 2014 and the sort of very early bits of 2015 sort of just enjoying being a, a dad because I'd had a, a kid a sort of year earlier and so I spent time with with her um, and basically sort of playing around a bit of what do I want to do and sort of did some courses in things like food management and sort of running sort of um, businesses and things like that so I saying well what sort of thing do I actually want to do I even got a personal alcohol license so um, I got a lot a personal alcohol license. Oh, so really? <laughs> if I want to. Um, but it, it's one of those things I sort of went through sort of that phase of, okay, fine, there are some things. And do I want to try and turn any of my hobbies, um, which at that point I was, and I still am very much into board games. At one point, did you, um, you had a little bit of a brewery grow going, didn't you? I'm, I'm not sure if it was, was you, did you have the license to sell at one point? I, I did have a license to sell. I never actually... Um, went ahead with it but oh, what I was to actually start a small sort of cafe slash bar yeah and thing possibly around sort of the board game theme there'd just been a couple of sort of board game cafes open in the country one in Oxford and one in London and I was thinking I like that sort of thing I like the people and doing things and um, do I want to do that and I spent a bit of time looking at the opportunities sort of in North Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and there wasn't really anything that I could sort of take on and, and basically make make a good show of with the resources that I had available to me at that right. time. Um, and so then at the beginning of 2015, I said, no, I actually better go and find a proper job again. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, applied um, through through yourself to um, what was Credit360. Yeah. Um, which was an interesting experience applying for that because... It was a much bigger company than Software for People was, but it had a lot of the same problems that Software for People was. And conversation I want to be part of seeing what happens when you can fix some of that. Um, so I went into that job as a sort of senior developer again with the team lead opportunity arose um yeah mainly sort of fine let's see if we can actually feel that yeah i'm here yeah i think the signal dropped a little there yeah um where did, where did you lose me or was i all right uh, you would know you were talking about the uh, the kind of similar challenges within cr360 at the time yes yeah, so it was we've gone through that process and sort of Credit Three Sixty was sort of just moving from a sort of waterfall to an agile process. I mean, it, it had sort of two weekly sprints and scrums and everything, but it still had a capacity plan rather than a sort of backlog. Um, so it was still it was still waterfall really for, for the most part. Um, but so yeah, I was just going through that um, transformation, and then UL purchased um, Credit Three Sixty. Yeah. Um, Generally, the business had gone out for investment because it sort of got to the stage where its product needed a bit of investment. And instead of the investment, UL bought the company. Um, and 
that was just as it had rebranded to CR360 and then became obviously UL. Yeah. Uh, a fair amount of change over there. Um, it wasn't particularly traumatic um, as a changeover. Sort of, UL didn't really know a huge amount about software companies at that point. And so to a certain extent, they left us alone to do what we were doing. Um, so, yeah, when I was, I was at, by that point, I'd sort of become, just kind of becoming to the point where I was looking for the next stage beyond the senior developers to back to either that team lead role or that had been mentioned or, or something else. Yeah. Um, and so Credit3 had the, the concept of a product architect. And it was sort of a cross between what you consider a classical architect in software engineering and somebody who just simply understood from a base level how the product worked in in product terms rather than technical terms, sort of bridged the gap between pure um, platform architecture and, and product design. And, and so we had one of those per team um, and we spun up a fourth team and we needed another one of those. And so I applied for, to get that position um, and, I, and I got that. I got that. Um, and so I was quite happy in that role um, and I was sort of doing it, I think, fairly well. Um, and then we started getting some, some bits of issues regarding the, the development management that, had, that was in place at the time. Um, the development manager who'd hired me met previously to, to that, and we'd had some new, and they hadn't really chilled with the team um, that way. Um, and it came to a bit of a head, and those, those managers left. Um, and it was a case of, well, who's going to, to fill that gap? And having somebody coming from outside hadn't worked. Um, and I was looking around the team saying, who else here actually has the, the experience to take that role on? And looking around and not seeing anyone and thinking, oh, heck, it's me, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so so I, I applied for that role um, fairly confident that I would get it. It was fairly gratifying to find out later that a couple of other people had also recommended me for it um but yeah that's where i started that role um when did i start that that was um i think beginning of 2018 so yes i've been there for about two and a bit years by that point so um so the beginning of 2018 i became the development manager um and that's what i've pretty much been doing ever since um that i still have the development management role the organisation has changed slightly in structure. Um, UL is a big multinational company, um, yeah. as is the way with big companies. They reorganise on a fairly regular basis. So um, we were doing the which was environment, health, safety and sustainability. We became, after a while, UL environment and sustainability. Um, and then um, software engineering within UL now is actually part of sort of a global software engineering entity, so we're trying to, to leverage the entire sort of strength that software engineering has within UL worldwide to, to build better products. So it's a very interesting time um, within, within UL, so there's a lot of cross-team collaboration and things sort of yeah. on the horizon to sort of share technology and services and possibly even for giving people the opportunity to, to work in other units to, to experience different things. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all quite good fun at the moment. Um, don't get me wrong, there are there are always um, things that are irritants, but in yeah, general, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm quite happy with what I do. I do miss the development and 
with, with a young family at home, I don't get as much time to do stuff in the in my spare time. So I am slipping behind a bit in my technical knowledge, but I'm sure one day online I will yeah. revisit and, and rectify it. But okay. for the moment, I, I do what I do and I'm pretty happy doing it. Fantastic. <laughs> no, to be fair, that sets the scene really, really well um, for kind of the, the second part of the chat. Um, yeah. like the reason that we usually have the initial chat is to kind of give people a bit of background on on who Simon is, um, understand like your journey, the kind of uh, challenges that you've faced and things like that. And then, as you know from the discussions that we've had, we'll start kind of digging into um, some of the knowledge that you could share that other people could benefit from. Um, and I think your your idea on this topic was just brilliant. And the, the reason is the way the... The way the market is at the minute is absolutely dire. People are struggling to to find work, and any way that they can, anyone can help them um, in any way. Especially kind of giving people confidence when it comes to interviews and things like that is uh, is yeah, it's brilliant. It's like gold. Um, so we discussed having a chat around kind of recruitment into technology roles. So do you want to give me a just a quick overview of why you thought that would be a good thing to kind of have a chat about and. And we'll take it from there. Yes, yeah, so I've hired well, I've hired quite a few people. I've already interviewed um, 100, 200 people now um, yeah. in career for things. And that ranges from people entering the um, sort of term field as sort of junior developers or junior quality assurance analysts, um, in product owners, that sort of thing, right up to um, being involved in sort of director level and, and above sort of interviews for for people um, and you can sort of see what the people are thinking and how they're presenting themselves across those levels and how it changes over time and they get obviously a bit more confidence in their interview process and you're sort of looking back and saying well what is it that's failing the people at the entry level why are they not prepared for a life in the workplace and sort of getting themselves a job um, this was more prevalent to a certain extent at software people than it was at UL because we hired more people at the sort of entry level at software people than we do at yeah. UL today. Um, but from sort of what I've, I've heard and everything else and sort of what I've seen in other roles, it's still a, a predominant problem that people come out of education um, not knowing how to get themselves a job, yeah, how to present themselves how to conduct themselves in an interview, um, what's expected of them when they actually join a company. Um, I don't think that the educational system is helping them at all. Um, when it was sort of things like job centres and things like that, again, they gave people no help to present to themselves at all. And it's frustrating that yeah, that <laughs> we have every, every year hundreds of thousands of people and trying to enter fields and not knowing anything about how to do it. Yeah. And yeah, if I can give some people who are just thinking about coming into a technology role, not just necessarily development, but it's sort of product management, product owners, the other roles within development, sort of um, scrum masters, those sorts of roles, they all come back down to a number of things that are fairly simple for people to actually master, but without being told that that's what people are looking for, 
you're left on your own to do it. Now, if they come through an agency, I hope you guys give them some pointers on some of these things. But if yeah, people are applying for things directly, um, they do tend to suffer from not presenting themselves very well. Um, and uh, yeah, that's sort of what I just wanted to, to cover to sort of see if we can help people out a bit on that, that area. Yeah. So where, where should we start on that then? Because um, obviously when we, when we had a chat, you thought this was something really good to have a chat on. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of let you take the lead on this one. Yeah, so I mean, obviously the first thing that you get to see from anybody is in general a CV yeah. from point of view. And as, as technology has proliferated, um, so has the size of the block you get at the top of somebody's CV saying how many technologies they know. And now particularly with somebody who's just coming out of education or has just been doing their own projects, you know that they can be possibly two or three technologies that they can genuinely be significantly proficient at. Yeah. But then you see a block that lists 20. You say, right, okay, fine. This is simply telling me that you're trying to blag yourself into a position and then you're going to get discounted from that. Cut it back to what you know and explain what you know and why you know it and where your learning path is and where you hope to go. Um, if you mention technologies in a block or skills in a block at the top, you need to call them out in your description below that Yeah. to say how you've employed those technologies. And it doesn't have to be in a commercial arena. It can be in educational things or personal projects. Exactly. But you can't simply list a whole long line of, of languages with no context whatsoever because... We get a lot of CVs to, to look through. And if there's no context for any of this stuff, it's going to be assumed that to a certain extent you're just throwing down anything that you spent two weeks playing with at university. Um, and so therefore, less is quite considerably more in, in this case. Cut it down to what you're comfortable talking about and that you can justify what you did. So that would be the, the first thing to say is, structure the CV to actually show off your strengths, not simply everything that you've, you know the name of. Yeah. And the other thing is, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with tailoring your CV to the position that you're applying for. Yeah. So if, if you're applying for a company that does, does SaaS software or a company that's doing on-prem software, talk about how your current experience applies to those environments. Um, it might not be that you did a huge amount of of working your positions or your educational stuff that directly applies, but you can start to, to pull things out and say, well, this is what I've done. This is where I think I need to grow to do it. I think this is an opportunity that would enable me to do that. Employers are just as interested in what any, any potential candidate's growth path is, what they want to, to achieve over the next few years as what their current skill set is, because the last thing you want is somebody coming in getting up to speed over six months and deciding that they actually want a different career path and leaving and doing something else. If you've invested the time in getting somebody up to speed, you want them to stay with you for at least a couple of years. Yeah. Therefore, you want to know that their progression path is one that correlates with what you can offer them. Um, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's bad for an employee to hire the wrong person, but it's also bad for a the other way around to, to, to take the wrong job and everything. So it needs to be a discussion to, to yeah. that the future of the company is what is good for both the employer and the employee. So yes, explain what you want to get out of this, what this job would offer you 
what you what you see yourself doing after a couple of years in the role type of thing. And you can do that through the yes, in the CV to say these are the technologies that I want to pursue. Um, most job descriptions list some technologies that are in use um, or sort of are in place and are being phased out or everything. And therefore, I would sort of say that one of the other things to do is try and avoid looking like you're stuck in a certain technology, possibly even if it's, especially if it's one that's on the way out. Yeah. I mean, so if you've got a number of, of sort of bits apart through your history of saying, well, I use this technology here, I use this same technology here, I use the same technology again in this position, it sort of makes it look like you sort of gravitate to, the, to that technology. You're not necessarily looking for anything that's, that's going forwards. Um, again, employers are looking for people who are able to adapt to new technologies, but are not afraid to get their hands dirty with the legacy software, legacy functionality that they have in place that needs um, some love and attention. So, so yes, yeah, so tailor it, don't belabor certain things, but make sure you cover anything that you're calling out in detail. So I think sort of that's the point from a sort of a CV point of view. Um, yeah, when you get to an interview, there's sort of mistakes again that people make there are sort of no background knowledge from the company you're applying for. You're effectively unable to distinguish what you did from what your company did. So it's all very well yeah, saying yeah. we as a company did this. Well, that, that's fine. There were probably 30 of you. What did you do? Be able to talk about what you did. Um, don't try too hard to impress um, and just obviously generally be prepared. Um, but a lot of it is about the fact that if you've gone through to an interview, somebody thinks you can do the job. Hiring managers don't have time to throw away interviewing every person that comes through the door. I mean, certain sort of um, guaranteed interview schemes aside, people are very selective about who they're going to put through to interview simply because of time constraints. Therefore, your CV or any technical assessment that you've done getting up to that point has sort of shown that you can do the job and therefore your job at the interview is to not talk yourself out of getting the job yeah so at that point you've got to go through sort of a number of processes one is effectively respect the room don't just talk to the sort of who seems to be the most senior in the room in most cases there's an interview panel talk to them get you know, it's supposed to be personable. You you need to show to them that they're somebody you can work with. Um, it's it's far more about personalities in an interview. Than yeah, skill sets. Just on that, so can I, I get your opinion on something? So one thing that we tend to advise people when going into an interview is we always say to them, um, I appreciate this is easier said than done, just relax try and just be yourself and let your personality come across and one thing one piece of advice that I've always given people that has always it depends on the manager sometimes that's interviewing them but um, we'll always say to them if you see an opportunity in that interview to to have a laugh or maybe a joke with that manager that you're speaking to just make sure you take it because knowing that you will fit into that team and this is someone that they're going to enjoy working with every day can often be just as important as the technical skill set that you bring into the table. Um, 
and sometimes you, it, it all depends on the manager and how well you know the manager that they're kind of interviewing with. I mean, what, what's your opinion on that? Yes, I mean, it, it's, it certainly depends on how the interview's gone up yeah. until that point. I mean, if, if, if you feel that it's been quite a stressful um, experience, then don't try to make jokes because they won't come out right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it'll fall flat. If, if yeah, it's a case of, well, I think that I'm, I'm doing <laughs> here let's sort of um, test the water are these the same people who have the same sort of um, mindset as me then then that's not a problem Um, but yes in general managers are aware aware that interviews are probably the most stressful experience you're going to have in the employee process disciplinary processes should (laughs) heaven forbid anyone has to get into those but that side actually getting a job is very very difficult particularly if you're already out of work for some reason, yeah. then it's vital to you to get a, a job because you need, you need an income. And so I'm very much aware that it's a very stressful experience for it. Um, I try to avoid putting any um, exercises in it that require you to dig through your memory to pull things out because when you're stressed, your, your sort of long-term recall for things becomes a bit difficult. So in general, any sort of exercises for the technical things like prior to the if it's say role or if it's for things like a quality assurance role, try to do things that don't actually require you to, to write or take things from memory, but simply based on your sort of instinctions. Show me how you would um, test this already stressful. Yeah, we lost it again. Yeah, I think 2020 is the only year that it's acceptable to have a kind of a bad signal problem when you're locked down at home. So uh, <laughs> I think we're okay with missing a couple of beats. Um, so I try to avoid that. I appreciate not all managers do. Yeah. That you do technical tasks in um, in the role, in sort of in the interview. Um, that sort of gets easier as you go through the, the roles because as you become more senior, you, you have an inherent level of confidence in your own ability. And you say, well, if I don't get this one, I'll get the next one because I know I'm a good developer or I'm a good quality assurance analyst or I'm a good scrum master or product owner or whatever it is. But that can be very intimidating if you're new to the um, new to the field. And so a lot of it is basically a case of anything you're being asked is unlikely to be unfair. So then the same as any exam in school or anything of that sort, just make sure you understand what you've been asked for. If you don't understand, ask. Yeah. There's no point in them giving you 20 minutes to do something, coming back after 20 minutes, and you say, on this, was it the right thing? No. Make sure you know that before you're given that time. Because, it's, yeah, it's going to be a case of only that what you've said on your CV is you. And that's, to a certain extent, the only other thing you're trying to prove in the interview is that the person sitting in front of them is, is the person who submitted that CV. They are the yeah person you're not you're not masquerading as somebody with a skill set you don't have so you, you've got to prove that to a certain point and even that's to a certain extent in some companies a bit optional because companies that are hiring a lot of people can afford to take certain risks and you'll they'll find out very quickly if you've lied on your cv yeah you deal with that within the first week or two of you getting into the employment so there's no point in lying about any of this stuff you will find out so therefore a lot of this is simply about yes can we work with you as an individual do you think do we think that you're going to fit in well with the team? Do we think that your growth pattern is something that we can support and that actually inherently will make our team processes better? 
And that's pretty much across all of the tech roles. It's not de development specific or anything of that sort. It's all about basically, basically building that rapport. I have hired people before where it was a case of, I don't really care whether you can do the job that I've advertised or not. I want you in my company. Right. Okay. If, I'll find a role for you because the way you've prepared, the way you've presented yourself, the whole attitude that you've exuded makes you a person I have to hire. Yeah. The, the fact is you will make the company better by being in it. And that's the point. If you can get to the stage where you present that sort of attitude, it's not arrogance. There's a difference. You, you can't go into these things being arrogant. But if you can go into them being showing that you're the sort of person who goes that extra mile, takes care and everything, makes sure that um, all their projects would be high quality and that sort of thing, not necessarily going to finish them in half the time of anybody else because quick and terrible is far worse than perfect and late. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things. So provided that you can give that um, confidence that anything that you do, you're going to put your best of efforts into and that you're going to engage with people and generally make the whole work experience better for other people is priceless. I mean, I, I would, I would always hire somebody with that attitude and a slightly lower skill set over somebody with an ex extremely wide range of skills, but with a a less confidence that they're actually that person who will go the extra mile for you and make sure that everything is is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's yeah, it's it's that thing. But but yeah, back when you're sort of just starting out that's your strength because you don't have a wide range of skill sets. So portray the fact that you're a diligent, careful, engaging, wanting to learn person that's going to be, make the company a better place for everybody for the next N years. Um, and the one I'd say most important thing about an interview is to know something about the company before you go into the interview, you will get asked, what do you know about X, yeah. the company? And worst is nothing at all. Second worst is, well, I had a quick look at your website. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> hey, okay, fine. Well, I know that you're involved in this arena and that arena, and that's been sort of like the company focus for X sort of percentage of the, the time, and that you're currently sort of targeting these sort of arenas. Again, that is stuff that's generally available on people's websites, but it's going from the point of view of saying, I opened the website to prove you're a real company, to I opened the website and actually read through some of the content yeah. on it. Um, you get a lot of people who simply regurgitate whatever's in the header of job descriptions. Right, okay, yeah. You know, yes, I know that about my company as well, because I wrote it, type of thing. <laughs> Something that's beyond what I've already told you. Yeah. And again... People who are able to do that, um, you can then start to see if that resonates with them as something that they're genuinely interested in. UL is involved in the environments, um, sustainability and safety arena. And a few years ago, people in technical arenas wouldn't really have cared very much about that. It was a sort of recurring job that the main thing that got people through the door to interviews for us from their point of view was that we had car parking spaces because yeah. they wanted to drive there. But that's changing. Now we get to the stage now where actually people are saying, well, actually, I do care about sustainability and environment and everything else. And the fact that they've actually now sort of seen about 
what UL does as a company allows us to talk a bit about that in the interview. So, okay, fine. Well, what do you think about that? And it doesn't mean that you necessarily got the wholly right end of the stick on this. I mean, you, you can be saying that there's something that in, it's not quite what we do or it's sort of same arena, but sort of wrong focus. That's, that's fine. It, it shows that you've gone and looked at enough to put some effort in that we can have a discussion about yeah. it. Um, and then we can see, well, fine, does that, what does what UL does resonate with you as a person? Do you have any interest in there um, that, that might help drive it and might help facilitate conversation within the rest of the business, not just the technical arena? Um, historically, we had a situation that the dev team was interested in solving technical problems and things like the implementation team were actually interested in sustainability and safety and things like that. Um, and therefore, it was fairly difficult to communicate between the two because they had two very different language sets. But now you're getting a much more blending of that. You get people from you know, the implementation side who have far more technical interest. Um, things like um, sort of big data and AI have made sort of technology become far more interesting to, to everybody. Yeah. Everyone's far more interested. So they're coming from, the, from that side coming across with technical interest. And you've now got people in the technical arena saying, well, actually, I do care about sustainability. I've got a family. I'm worried that the, the world's going the wrong way. Yeah, I appreciate that you can't fix it on your own, but the fact that you're working with companies to help them identify ways that they can produce less waste, less carbon, etc. Actually, I understand that, and that's quite interesting to me. And so, therefore, by taking time to learn a little bit about the company, you can actually start sparking another conversation that, to a certain extent, isn't about the job role at all, but allows the interviewer and the candidate to actually develop that rapport to say, fine, we can actually have a conversation about something other than the work and understand each other and where we go and what our sort of thought processes are. That, that means that I know that we'll get on as a group and that we won't have any major frictions here because in general we're a company who, who likes people who are prepared to talk about things. Yeah. And so, so that's sort of how I, how, I, how I feel that, yeah, the knowing something about the company or knowing more than something, knowing a, a enough to be able to hold a conversation about what the company does, I'd say is one of the, the most important things. Okay. You at all. I think uh, we 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 got we had a few questions sent in when we uh, we mentioned that you were going to be coming on with us. We uh, we pushed it out to the Tech Journey Slack community and put some posts on LinkedIn and things like that. But to be honest with you, you've kind of answered them all as you've as you've talked through. Um. Yeah, so, I feel like I've rambled in certain places, but I, I <laughs> care about some of this stuff, and it frustrates me. Yeah, you can to be fair, you, you can hear you can hear the passion that you have for it, which is uh, which is always a good thing. I, I know that again. When I've, I've I've seen people who've come into position, come into interviews, and have just sort of fallen apart, and you think, I, I that's such a shame because. Yeah you had everything you've said so far to me in sort of a telephone conversation I've had or seeing your CV indicates you know your stuff. Yeah. It came to it, you were unable to actually do it. And so I've sort of spent the last few years trying to change my interview style to a point where it is indicated I'm here as somebody who's in, almost as a therapist type of thing of like, talk to me about what you do. And um, basically try and say, okay, fine. Where does that lead you? How do you think that will help us as, as a company? Um, 
and try and let try and give them sort of starters to to get what's in their head out so that they can actually say what they're thinking rather than just basically saying don't say something stupid don't say something stupid don't say something stupid throughout the entire interview which yeah in a few interviews i've done from the other side is is a case of well yeah i sort of felt that at that time um and it, it's it is it is very debilitating to to get into that position and take so, just basically get yourself to a position where you go into the interview and say, I know I'm going to get this job. It's one of the things that there's nothing to stop me getting this job. I just now need to present myself as a human. Yeah. The people on the other side of that desk and basically share in our humanity and basically prove that, that we're all the same species and talk the same language type of thing. Yeah. Um, That's good. Um, I think we're coming, well, we've gone 10 minutes over, which isn't a problem, but I do have... That's pretty typical for my meeting. <laughs> I somewhat like the yeah, sound of my own voice, I must admit. No, it's been a really good conversation, to be honest with you, and I think it's uh, there's a lot of value in there. And it's like, like I was saying to you earlier, um, it's exactly the kind of information that people need right now. Um, mm. I, 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 we we, um, we kind of surveyed... Uh, all the incoming calls that we had within the business over the past four weeks. And I put a post on LinkedIn about it the other day, like it's not to scare anyone, but one in three people that we're getting a call from at the moment are unfortunately either worried about the job or have been made redundant. Um, but I said on the flip side of that, we are getting a lot less calls. So it doesn't, it's nothing to panic about. Um, but there are a lot of people out there at the minute that just need help and advice. And especially on the interviewing side, you can get yourself into a position where, you, you can get yourself into a position where you you don't need to change jobs. And usually if you're in that situation, you'll, you'll interview a lot better when you go into a business because there's a lot less pressure. But if you find out that you're losing your job um, or you've just been made redundant and there's all that pressure on you to find work, that's when it gets a lot more difficult. Um, and that's what we're, we've been trying to... Kind of like you said, you've been acting as a therapist. We've been like giving pep talks to people um, 24 hours before and an hour before an interview, just trying to calm them down and make them realise the mentality of it's it's not the end of the world if you don't get this. There's always going to be another one, and if you if you try and take that pressure off your off your own shoulders, you'll perform a lot better. Um, so no, some really really good advice there. I appreciate that, Simon. Yeah. And it's things like um, other people like Ben Mancini you had on previously, he's talking yeah. about um, Cambridge Agile, things like that. If, if you're worried that you've got gaps in your knowledge and that you're going to get asked things that you don't know, talk to your peers. Go yeah. to groups where you can have a discussion, do that. If you're worried that you don't necessarily write the best things down when you're going to send something, get someone to proofread it. Again, make use of your friends, your acquaintances to fill the gaps to make to help you present yourself in the best light, because at the end of the day, no one's going to do it for you. Yeah, you've you've got to make to make your presentation to a potential employer the best you can to get yourself through that door. Fantastic. So. No, brilliant, <laughs> fantastic. Anything that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, I think I've said enough. So uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. No, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Uh, it's been a really good chat. Um, I'll let you get off and enjoy your weekend. Um, I'm going to pick, go and pick my son up now myself. Got to try and get there in the next 15 minutes. Uh, and maybe we'll. I'll just follow up with you on Monday, and we'll have a quick, uh, quick chat and a follow up if that's okay. 
That's fine. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, great stuff. Have a good weekend, Simon. See you later. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.